This episode is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. Logos Bible Software is by far my favorite and most used Bible study tool. I use it for sermon prep, personal Bible study, and it's where I've chosen to buy my books and build my theological library. In Logos, your books aren't just books. They're integrated with a host of tools that not only enhance the value of those books, but empower your study of scripture. Listeners of this podcast can get a special discount on Logos by going to Logos, that is L-O-G-O-S, Logos.com, slash partner, slash Kirk Miller, and on top of that discount, they're even going to throw in a free five books for you. Be sure to use my special discount code Kirk8, that's Kirk8 at checkout, for any purchases, that'll ensure you get the best price. Or if you're new to Logos and you're unsure, follow that web address anyways, because there's a free version that you can get. That's right, free. Again, that's logos.com slash partner slash Kirk Miller. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller. And I am here today with uh, my guests that I had last time. We have again with us Mark Ward. Welcome again to the podcast, Mark. It's great to be here, Kirk. And I am very excited, uh, as I was just telling you before we started, for this particular episode. We are doing a series right now on scripture, um, looking at things like the canon we talked about last time. Um, Today we're going to talk about authority of Scripture, and we'll continue talking about other subjects like translation and sufficiency, etc. But yeah, today we're going to be talking about the authority of Scripture. Um, So before we get too far in, Mark, um, what do we mean by the authority of Scripture? Um, What do we mean by that word authority, or specifically speaking of Scripture as authoritative? Can you help us just by getting some definitions on the table? Yeah, um, I I like to define authority the way John Frame does, with his triperspectivalism, and I pray that no listeners of the podcast will be put <laughs> off by the highfalutin terminology. It really isn't that complicated. It just means looking at things from three different perspectives. And though I urge readers to go out and pick up the Doctrine of the Word of God or any of Frame's other books, that one happens to be about bibliology. And, uh, you know, you can learn more about his triperspectivalism there. Listen to how simple it is. He says that God's lordship involves his control, authority, and presence. And if you take out any of those elements, then you don't have the kind of authority that God exerts. So control is he actually is active in the world, making things happen the way he wants them to. And you can have authority and presence, but not have control. I mean, every dad knows exactly how that is. You can be in the living room and your kids can be going wild. You can have all the authority and, excuse me, all the presence you want and you don't have control. Or you can have authority without control and presence. You can have the title and the office, but you can be absent and therefore have no effect. Or you can, to belabor this just a little bit more, you can have control and authority and not presence. There are people who can exert their control and their office far from far away. But God's lordship is all three things, control, authority, and presence. So the authority of scripture is one of the means by which he exercises his, you could call it, office of being God. That's the main thing we mean by authority. But he also does exert control over his church. He's actually doing things through the word, and he's exerting his presence. His spirit is illuminating the word. So I like, I think frames, simple words are really helpful when we're asking, what is authority? You know, it's this, you wrote in your notes, binding, imposing obligation. Um, It's binding because God can actually bind. He's got that control and he's actually present doing it. Uh, I that's a maybe too long of an answer to a simple question. What is authority? That's how I like to answer it. Yeah, I mean, there's a simple way of uh, of answering it, but it's good to dig down into the details of it. I mean, part of this question, which you already elaborated on a little bit, is well, we can talk about what is authority, and and, and we can speak of a multitude of different um, agencies or persons having authority. So, like the police have authority in a certain realm and to a certain extent. Um, 
people in government have authority. Uh, church pastors have authority to an extent. Like we can talk about different forms. A teacher has authority, what have you. Um, so I'm not, we can talk about authority abstractly, but then we're specifically talking about the authority of Scripture. Um, and so maybe unpack that a little bit more. Where Scripture derives its – like when we talk about Scripture being authoritative, like why is Scripture authoritative? Where is it getting its authority? Um, well, it's because of what the Bible claims, and we believe this claim. It is, like our uh, conversation last week, in a sense circular – there is no higher authority than God's words, so we appeal to God's words to justify our belief in God's words. And what does God's word say? It says that uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, this is Second Timothy 3, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And you've got the other classic passages on this, Second uh, Peter 1, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Uh, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you've got passages where Acts says David spoke by the Holy Spirit, or David will say in the Psalms to the Lord, your word is on my tongue. So, um, and I like, you brought up, I think, Hebrews 1 in our last conversation, uh, that God in various ways spoke to us in times past, but now he's spoken to us through his son. Well, how do we access the statements of Jesus? It's through scripture. It's the 66 canonical books that we were talking about in the canon discussion. Um, and they claim, and I believe the claim, that they are God's words. Now, they're also human words. They're written down by humans. They uh, were written in human languages, they feature personal stories and you can see the personalities and even the grammatical and, you know, uh, vocabularical tendencies of the various authors. But it's, it's just like that verse that I read. Men spoke from God mm -hmm. as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were the ones speaking, but they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Scripture derives its authority from its, its coming ultimately from God. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so really, this doctrine of the authority of Scripture is very closely tied to what we call the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, which I don't believe we're going to spend a whole episode on. But in many ways, it ties right in here. So the doctrine of inspiration um, really coming out of some of those verses you just read, being that Scripture is God's word. It is uh, comes from that language in that Timothy passage of all scripture being God, God breathed, being the breath of God. It comes from his very mind, um, his very, his very communicative, communicative act to express his, his will, his thoughts to reveal himself. And the authority of scripture then comes from the fact that God is the highest authority. As you, I liked, as you put it, God exercising the office of God. And by definition, God is going to be the highest authority. And if he's the highest authority, then his word carries his authority. Um, like if I get a subpoena from a court, um, that subpoena, although it may be written down, I guess I've never got a subpoena. I assume it's written down on a piece of paper. <laughs> or something I. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm glad. But um, I assume it's written down on a piece of paper or something like that, just from watching TV and movies. Um, but it carries the, the authority of the, of the judge or of the court um, because it's their word. Um, right. It represents their will in this matter. And so scripture is authoritative in as much as it represents or it, not in as much like it, it does represent God's will into which uh, on the matters into which it speaks. Yeah, I, I have a little illustration I've used before. It kind of struck me actually as I was listening to sadly professing Christians who it seemed to me were denying the authority of scripture in various ways and um uh, it's probably not going to be news to people out there that there is such a thing as mainline liberal Protestantism. And although they would affirm, and I'm glad they do, a lot of the truths of Scripture that I affirm, um, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Yeah, we totally agree on that. Um, nonetheless, they they would tell me things like, you know, when I would cite Scripture, one of my friends, I, he was a United Methodist youth, youth pastor, and we played Ultimate Frisbee together. And he would say things like, well, you don't want to put God in a box, and that was me just citing scripture. That was his response. And I, I always thought it was kind of like, you know, teenagers who are uh, given uh, the privilege of driving a car for the first time. And dad puts a post-it note on the refrigerator giving the rules, including you may not drive, be out driving after 10 p.m. And this teenager, you know, her friends have seen this post-it note. And sure enough, at 10, 13 p.m., they're out driving. And one of them suddenly says to the driver, 
didn't your dad say that you're not supposed to be driving past 10? And imagine this teenage girl saying, oh, no, that wasn't my dad. That was just a post-it note on the fridge. Mm-hmm. Words, even if they're written down inside a book that, yeah, had to go through translation and other human processes, they can and they do carry the will, actually the personality of the person who gives them, and therefore also the authority. If God speaks, what he says is true, and we have to obey it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a it's kind of you're making me chuckle. It's kind of a funny. It's like obviously we know that the words of someone um, reflect their will. Um, I yeah, I I agree with you. I like John Frame on this as well. Um, and that's where I got some of the language in the notes that that you see there is he speaks of authority as like this being able to impose. It's binding. It's being able to exercise um, obligations on one another. So when God says something, we may disobey. It doesn't mean he lacks authority. It means that we're wrongfully disobeying him. He, he he has the right to demand these things of us or to determine a standard of truth, to say what is right. true and what is untrue, what is right and what is morally wrong. Um, something else that Frame really brought out to me that I found so helpful was that this is not an impersonal uh, category. It's a personal one. Mm. So um, what is authority it isn't always something that comes from an organizational chart. So I play Ultimate Frisbee on Tuesday nights, and one of the things I've been reflecting on recently is, okay, I I tend to be what's called a handler or like a quarterback mm-hmm. in Ultimate, and therefore I exert a kind of authority. Nobody ever voted for me. Um, there's no no organizational chart. You know, We didn't have any explicit discussions about this, but when I'm on the field, um, I... People throw me the disc in such a way that indicates they recognize a a level of leadership. When when a better player is on my team, uh, we have a guy from Canada who is an awesome player. I defer to him. He has authority. There is a personal relationship there that is binding, even if there's no official office. And God has that kind of authority, too. Um, authority is something that only persons can have over other persons. So we're, this is part of our relationship to God. We relate to him through the word. That's how he expresses his authority. Hmm. Yeah. And that is scripture is a, is one of the ways that he mediates his authority. We might say, yes. or exercises it, um, imposes it. Um, it's scripture is a, is one of God's primary tools we see all throughout redemptive history it's one of his primary tools in working out redemption and conveying the message of, of his salvation as well as conveying um, his authority and his will i like um the the gospel coalition has a, a more popular um document that's called the confessionals they call it their confessional statement it's part of their founding documents um, a more like contemporary statement of faith and it says, it says this uh, and under the section on Scripture. It says, These writings referring to Scripture alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God. So Scripture is God's Word, in other words, which is utterly authoritative. And without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of His will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. Which I think is a really helpful phrase. Um, understanding doesn't necessarily speak to everything. Like it's not the Bible isn't going to tell me how to uh, learn how to drive a car or fix my lawnmower or something like that. But into every area of which it speaks, it exercises ultimate authority. The Bible is to believe, it continues later on, the Bible is to believe as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. So they're like a very practical description of how that authority comes to bear. When the Bible teaches me something, I ought to uh, believe it. When it tells me to do something, I ought to obey it. When it promises something, I ought to trust it, etc. I just find that a very helpful description. Yeah, that's uh, those are really uh, beautiful ways to word those things. And um, the number of times John Frame keeps coming to my mind is an indication of his profound influence on me here. But when I read that phrase, final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks, I think of Frame again, because you're exactly right. You know, there aren't there isn't an appendix in the back of the book um, telling you how to learn how to drive or how to comb your hair. Um, or whether or not you should button the top button, you know, as hipsters like to do and their button-down shirts. Um, 
But Frames like likes to say, well, but it does speak to everything. You know, it, it, at least in general, it speaks to everything. Mm-hmm. It says, you know, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Yeah. And it gives other principles that apply more generally. So I, I, I don't think I'm being nitpicky here to, to want to add that. I totally agree with what the TGC statement there says. Um, but I want to acknowledge God's authority. Um, I want to acknowledge God's authority over every last thing that I do think or love. And I'm looking to the Bible as my main means, not my only means, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. finding out what that authority is telling me to do. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a totally helpful nuance um, because you could come away if you kind of say, well, the Bible is we're kind of getting into a subject. Let's I mean, let's just talk about this now as a domain of authority um, is what is specifically the domain of the sphere, we might say, the extent of Scripture's authority. Because I think your point is helpful. Um, you could walk away and say, well, if, this, if Scripture doesn't speak directly about everything, like your point is indirectly it's still, um, I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, but I think that's no, what I'm that's, hearing you saying. That's is accurate, yeah. This idea of it, it may not speak directly to every little particular issue, but it, nonetheless, the implications of what it does say do speak to every issue. Um you don't. You wouldn't want to walk away thinking, "Well, the Bible doesn't speak to everything, therefore I'm sort of autonomous. I'm on my own. Right. I can do what I want when it comes to X, Y, and Z. Like as long as the Bible doesn't say I can't do this, or as long as the Bible doesn't speak to this directly, therefore I'm free to do what I want." Well, the Bible does give some pretty comprehensive um, commands. Commands that are to the fullest extent um, demanding in terms of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right. loving our neighbor as ourself, that there's pretty much nothing off limits at that point. Right. Yeah. So here we go with frame again. He'll, he imagines a person who says, oh, I understand the Bible just fine. And, uh, but you notice that he's stealing donuts and you say, well, you don't appear to be understanding. Uh, Thou shalt not steal. And he insists, no, I understand it just fine. And Frame says, no, if you don't know how to use the Bible faithfully, then you don't really understand it. And how could the Bible, as an ancient document, have predicted all the very particular sins that are possible in a Western world? You know, I, I used to have a, a, a kid at camp in my cabin way back in the early days of the internet who thought it was absolutely fine to be downloading pirated software and music. And, it, you know, we didn't download pirated movies back then. It was just too early in the days of the internet. Yeah, too but, slow. Um, right. That would have been a fruitless endeavor. But um, he insisted it was totally fine. You know, the record companies are already making plenty of money. You know, I wouldn't have bought this anyway, so they're not really losing any money on me. And I would say here's here's a guy who either doesn't understand the way thou shalt not steal applies to his circumstance or more likely is really just suppressing that Mm -hmm. truth. You know, the Bible doesn't mention internet pornography, Mm -hmm. um, but it gives the principle Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Mm -hmm. The um, Jesus, it's true. You know, one of the things my United Methodist friend would say to me is that Jesus never mentions homosexuality. But um, in Matthew 19, when he's asked about divorce, he draws an implication from the authority of the story of Adam and Eve about sexual morality in his day. And surely that applies to um, to sexual morality in our day and the particular issues that arise. So the domain and extent or sphere of Scripture's authority is everything. There's mm-hmm. no there's no day when disciples get, you know, get some time off. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to be a disciple today. Um, and I, I've often thought about how God makes public pronouncements that even like the early, you know, in the early days of the church, the, the Romans saw, you know, they, they regarded Christians as atheists because they didn't worship their gods. They, they thought that their, the Christians were a challenge to Caesar, which in a way they were because of their allegiance to a higher king, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, there's, there's just no time when I have a right to weigh God's opinions among others and decide which one I'll follow. Instead, he's the moderator at the table telling me which opinions to follow. Or I also think here of uh, John the Baptist speaking to Herod. He says, you shouldn't have your brother Philip's wife. Now, I've thought of that with regard to several recent presidents. You know, what right do I have as a Christian to speak in that quote-unquote political realm about the sexual morality of my president while I derive it from this scriptural story of John the Baptist? 
um, that saying that God's authority exists everywhere and covers everything. Yeah. Uh, two things that, I, that came to mind as you're talking is right now I've been, I've been doing some study on political theology, which for those who aren't familiar with that uh, term, it's, it's really thinking through theologically about just how we navigate politics, not necessarily as individual citizens, but even thinking about the political structures as a whole. But anyways, I've been doing some reading on a guy I'm sure you're familiar with, Jonathan Lehman. Yes, um, I really love Lehman stuff on this. Yeah, Excellent. me too. Yeah, and it's one the of the best. things that he uh, he has a popular level book on politics, theology of politics and government called How the Nations Rage, and then a more academic one that I think comes from a dissertation called Political Church. I'm in the middle of that latter one, and I read, I listened through the former one. Well, anyways, in that more uh, popular level one, I believe it's in there, he talks about the difference between like straight line and jagged line issues, which kind of seems like a helpful helpful categories for what we're talking about here. So like a straight line issue would be like murder is wrong. The Bible clearly teaches that. Right. And so like an issue like abortion is is relatively straight line in that sense. We may disagree on how exactly we should enact things or whatever, but the line is straight on not killing persons, not killing human beings. Um, whereas on something like economics or foreign policy right. or what have you, we might agree on the principles of what scripture teaches about something, but the way it gets applied is going to be much more of a jagged line. It's, in other words, it's not going to be a straight A to B. There's going to be a little bit more – it's going to be more complicated. It's going to be a little bit more – we're going to have to be more sophisticated how we reason theologically and ethically about getting getting yes. somewhere. And so that's it, kind of that, – that, that is – I'm kind of hearing a little bit of those categories. And as we think of the authority of scripture and the, its domain, there are some areas where it's more straight line. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to other issues. It's just that other issues may be a little bit more what Lehman calls a jagged line issue. Right. Yeah, I love that distinction in him. And he's applied that also to complementarianism, the debate over gender roles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I find that extremely helpful because it doesn't help me only in being more sophisticated when called upon, although it certainly does. But it helps me to be charitable when when there is a, when it is a jagged line issue and God has chosen to speak more generally and without specificity, then I have I'm allowed to give more leeway to my brothers and sisters in Christ or even to non-Christians in the public square. So, for example, on economic policy, I mean, how many of us really knows what's going to happen after the enactment of a given policy, where we're all basing our expectations of the future in that realm on on doctrines, on beliefs we have about uh, about human nature, about the nature of society, and I'm I'm so much more willing to back off and say, here's what I think is best, but I'm willing to talk it over on mm-hmm. those jagged line issues. Uh, and that doesn't mean I'm shunting aside God's authority. It means that he exercises that authority in different ways on different issues. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think of John Frame again. Here we go again. Yeah. He says that theology is a person applying a norm to a situation. And that norm may be unchanging, and it is in Scripture. You know, that the words don't change. But, um, but the situation might be different. So in India... The right economic policy to uh, to use on the on money lending might be different than it is in the situation that we're called upon. So every time that we have to not only interpret our Bibles but interpret our cultures, interpret our situations, that introduces more variables and therefore more room to disagree and more reason for charity to one another. Yeah, that's really good. And what you were saying before too about cases like John the Baptist speaking to Herod, um, or even the early Christians giving their allegiance ultimately to Christ and how that was, I mean, Christ as a king, it was perceived as something of a political threat. And in somewhat, you know, accurately so, even though Christ says my kingdom is not of this world. Like that goes to show, like we can, especially in America, especially in liberal uh, democracy, and by liberal, I don't necessarily mean like the Democratic Party, but liberal as in like a secular. Classically liberal. Classically liberal, like the sense of, uh, the religious and the political should be somewhat kept separate. Like there's a separation of church and state. And what can then be sensed is that there's sort of like politics should be the neutral ground where religious beliefs don't infringe and impose. Um, but the early Christians didn't it, – it's 
It's not to say there isn't a place for religious freedom, obviously, but those examples that you give go to show they weren't afraid to bring their uh, the authority of God, the authority of Scripture, to bear on people like Herod and things like Caesar's claim to ultimate authority over the empire. Right, or like you think of the Old Testament prophets, I was just outlining the book of Amos and helping someone else outline Isaiah, and there are these whole sections where these Old Testament prophets are condemning the sins of surrounding nations who weren't Jewish at all, you know, Edom and the Philistines, let's say. And uh, how could they do that? It's because God's sphere of authority extends outward to include all the nations. Or, in fact, I got this in a way from President Barack Obama, who said in a speech at the National Prayer Breakfast some years back that um, he pointed out that you shouldn't have to check your faith at the door. And he he looked to somebody like a Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, which I just watched and listened to again on Martin Luther King Day, um, he... He, he gave, he thundered like an Old Testament prophet and he cited Old mm-hmm. Testament prophets, let mm-hmm. justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Barack Obama himself pointed out that you can't and shouldn't. And our best moral crusaders that we now respect, who told us we were all wrong and we kind of rejected him, uh, rejected them earlier, um, they appealed to us on a moral basis and often a scriptural one. Yeah, I, Lehman's been extremely helpful to me. Even just very recently, I just caught a little comment that he made, um, saying that uh, this gets a, this a little farther afield. But you know, liberal democracy has its values because we as Christians recognize that although God does have authority over everyone, He does not coerce them right now into believing the gospel, mm-hmm. and we can't either. They have to have freedom of conscience. So, classical liberalism is a tool we can use to do good work in society and even help promote the gospel because we have that freedom. But it isn't, um, it isn't the authority. Okay. Liberalism says we're going to listen to everybody's voice and everybody has a place at the table. We're not going to rule anyone out from the beginning. But as my favorite postmodern philosopher, Stanley Fish has pointed out, that makes liberalism the moderator, not God. Mm -hmm. And if insofar as liberalism is useful for us as Christians because it gives us this freedom, well, great. But my primary allegiance, my ultimate authority is not classical liberalism. It's God himself. Yeah. This kind of gets a little bit back to what we were talking about last week with presuppositionalism, which is the idea that there is really no such thing as neutral ground. We may have some shared overlap in commonalities with people of other worldviews, like coincidental overlaps, um, where we agree on like, you know, we can agree that science, like in the scientific method and observation or what have you, um, but we're operating from, we can be operating from fundamentally uh, different world views. And there's no such thing as sort of this neutral ground. Um, and as Christians, we can sort of fall prey to that when we assume that God's authority doesn't speak to certain issues or it shouldn't, we, we have to check it at the door as if somehow we're engaging in the public square um, in this sort of neutral ground when other people are not, even if they claim to be non-religious, their sort of secular non-religious um, identity and beliefs still have moral values, still have uh, belief claims just like we do. And so there, there's no sort we, we got to get rid of the facade that somehow, um, yeah, that somehow we're entering, that we have to check our, our sort of religious convictions at the door and other people, even the non-religious don't also have their own form of religious convictions. Yes, so many thoughts are swirling in my head, and I don't want to get too far <laughs> yeah, away yeah. from uh, authority, but here, here's one thought, you know. Um, I've gotten this actually from Jonathan Lehman and Stanley Fish. You know, that that title, neutral, is is not... Um, it, it's, it's actually the object of the contest, when you're the majority and everyone else is a tiny minority, whatever that, whatever field you're in, you know, on, on a political position or an economic one or a moral or religious one, then what everybody sort of takes as the default and it, what seems to be neutral is your assumptions. Um, but there was, and there was a time in American society where a lot of Christian assumptions were taken to be neutral mm-hmm. because Christian morality was the majority morality. Well, that isn't right. the case anymore. Yeah. And we, we let ourselves fall into a place where 
we could defend saying, well, you know, majority ought to rule because we knew what the majority was going to rule. Well, that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are not neutral. We are disciples at all times. We are under God's authority, no matter where we stand in the public square or out of it. Yeah. So let me ask this question then, as we've been talking about the extent or domain of authority is then the question, how does scripture's authority uh, interact or intersect with other quote-unquote authorities so like things like science or church creeds or reason how do we like okay there's a common phrase like all truth is god's truth and we believe not only in special revelation that is god supernaturally supernaturally revealing himself through things like scripture but also what theologians call general revelation where god generally reveals himself to all humanity through natural means or natural revelation um all truth is God's truth, though. So how does how does shouldn't Scripture match up with these other truths? And when they don't seem to match up, what do we do with that? How do we relate these authorities? Yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, this is such a lengthy, huge topic because yeah. every one of those potential other authorities you mention is rubbing up against and even you know sharply conflicting with uh, scriptural revelation, at least as it appears to a lot of people today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me let me start with an easier one. Um, you didn't mention this exactly, but okay, Ephesians four says that Christ gives teachers, pastors, and teachers to His church. And you and I, Kirk, both count ourselves to be among that number. Um, we have what we think, I presume, you know, is the gifting, and now we have the training, and we're actually exercising it in Christ's church. When we say we are Christ's gifts to His church, we don't mean that everything we say is perfect or everything we say is true. Of course, as individuals, we're praying that the Lord would allow that to be the case. Well, this this uh, office of teacher in the church is not just a gift. It's also in 1 Peter 5, um, something that lays obligations on people in the church. I do have, uh, insofar as I'm a Bible teacher at my church, a measure of authority Now, how often do I actually tell people you must obey? So far, it's been never, but that that time will likely come. And there are little decisions that I make that no one has objected to. They've just gone along with and and sort of they're submitting to me and I'm in charge of the music. I, you know, I make choices about that. Um, The Bible allows for and not just allows for, but calls for our... um, our obedience to authorities that are second or third tier underneath scripture. So here's a guy, let's imagine, who goes to a church where the pastor is abusing his authority and, let's say, teaching things that are false. He can't say, well, I was just following orders. He needs to follow his ultimate authority. But during that time period when he's wondering, huh, is what my pastor is saying, is it really true or not? I encourage people to presume that he is to start with to yeah if if you've had good reason to join this church then follow his authority as far as your conscience will allow but keep studying out the issues so um scripture interacts with other authorities by being the ultimate authority which rules those authorities Mm -hmm. it's the it's the norming norm Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean there are no other norms and when it comes to science or reason or church tradition it is totally appropriate for us to appeal to those authorities as long as we're doing our very best to make them, uh, to see the confluence between them and the norming norm of scripture and where they diverge. First, I try to fit them together. So I have made efforts, for example, in one of the most controversial areas, you know, creation of the world, I've made efforts to try to, um, uh, what's the word I want, you know, harmonize the the sure deliverances of modern science with what Genesis 1 through 11 says. But where I just cannot do that in good conscience, I cannot read these words to be saying what modern science is saying. I have to go with God's authority. Mm-hmm. Where you draw that line is the big issue, but that there is a line ought to be agreed upon by all Christians. It's It's God's speech that is our ultimate authority, not that of science or reason or church tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's helpful to know that as Christians, we're not the only ones who have to think through the issue of how we relate to various um, uh, quote-unquote authorities or sources of knowledge. So we're we're trying to think through how uh, divine revelation 
uh, let me clarify that scriptural revelation like relates to science for example or something like that and where they seem to conflict or we can't necessarily the claims of the scientific community seem to not fit how the plain teaching of scripture or something like that like we have to make a choice like which one which one is the normie norm as you said which one is a higher authority we're not the only one who does that the naturalist the person who doesn't believe in the supernatural they have to do that as well with certain issues all of us are are sort of weighing and saying what is my ultimate authority and we're not sort of um suspect as lovers of truth just because we we say that we think scripture is that highest authority um, everybody is doing that to some extent. The question is, which ultimate authority is the best, um, has the best claim? And we think scripture has that best claim as actually God's word. Right. And I, you make me think of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, who says that 99% of the things we quote unquote know, we actually believe on authority. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, and we shouldn't be scared by that. The man who jibs at authority, who says, I'm not going to believe anything in authority. I'm only going to believe things that are delivered directly by my experience and my reason. He's going to have to be content to know nothing all his life. You know, Lewis says, I've never been to New York City, but I've been told by people I trust that there is such a place. Well, what is he doing? He's taking that on authority. Yeah. Our scientific age likes to say like that, uh, like that man, well, we don't believe anything. We know, you know, everything we know, we know because of empirical experience through often through the tools of science. Uh, but that isn't reality. Anybody who's got some philosophical and theological sophistication to them can ask you enough questions to, I'd say, very quickly discover things that you've taken on faith and on authority. So we don't need to be afraid of that. Everybody does it. Everybody has to do it. We can't know everything by direct experience mm-hmm. that we need to l- lead our lives. And what authority will I most be likely to trust and most rewarded in trusting? It, right. It's got to be my creator. Right. Yeah. The one with ultimate knowledge, the one who actually created things as they are. Absolutely. And the other piece, too, I think that's helpful is to remember our own limitedness, our fi- our finitude, the fact that we're finite. And not only are we finite in terms of like we can't be everywhere at, at once, we can't know all everything. Like we have so many limitations. We only live so long, so we can only learn so much in this lifetime. But then added to that, the um, the effects of sin. So like as Christians, we actually believe that sin has a uh, destructive sort of effect on our ability to know, uh, because knowing is a moral activity. Um, knowledge is not neutral. Knowledge is God's knowledge. Um, it's what he's revealed. And so to know things is actually a moral activity. And in our sin, we suppress the truth, as Paul says in Romans 1. Right. Yeah. God, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that all-important passage in hamartiology, the doctrine of sin, what you got is Paul holding people responsible or, or saying that God holds people responsible for their epistemological sins, their sins of knowledge. You got Jesus, and we'll talk about this uh, later, who repeatedly says to the Pharisees, have you not read? Reading, you're exactly right, and we're both reflecting John Frame yet again, Yeah. Um, but ultimately the Apostle Paul and Jesus, you know, Jesus holds people responsible for how they read the scripture, how they interpret it, not just that they read it, but how they read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, we're not just brains on a stick, in other words. We're people who, who love, we're people who want... Um, we're people affected by our moral condition. Um, I, I before I, before we get be totally uh, close up shop for today, I did want to touch on this doctrine that we call sola scriptura, which in many ways has kind of been in the background of a lot of what we're, we're talking about when we talk about the authority of scripture. But can you define for us um, and maybe give a little bit of the historical background, if you would, to what we mean when we say sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase? Right. Sola Scriptura is one of the big five ringing calls of the Protestant Reformation from the 16th century and into the 17th century. And they were defining the Christian doctrine of Scripture as over against the Roman Catholic view, which never has denied that Scripture is an authority. Mm -hmm. But it simply made that authority um, formally equal to that of the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, and to church tradition, and functionally subsumed the authority of scripture to the authority of the pope. So in Sola Scriptura, I mean, 
this is the kind of thing that just has to get repeated over and over again because people do misunderstand. We're not right, saying right. Protestants are not saying that Scripture is the only authority. We already talked about other authorities that Scripture itself gives us. What we're saying it is the it is the only ultimate authority. It is the highest authority. So I don't like it. This is this is a pet peeve. Okay, this is not a big deal. But a lot of church doctrinal statements will say that the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. And I want to ask a piddling question like, um, who told you then? Where does the Bible tell you that um, the very best glue <clears throat> for putting the cover on your hymnals is the particular glue that was chosen by your you know, hymnal publisher? You don't get that from the Bible. You get it from the general revelation of our experience through observing how God's creation works. And the scripture itself gives us these other authorities. So this, the scripture is not our sole authority, but it is our highest authority. Yeah, that's right. And that's what we mean by it, because it's not solo scriptura, as some have said, uh, but sola scriptura, which is the idea of it being the ultimate. So we, it, it kind of goes back to the question, we that area we were talking about before with the domains of authority. We recognize other authorities. We recognize other areas of truth over which God is still Lord. They are, it's still his truth. Um, general revelation, that which he's revealed outside of scripture is still what he has made known. Um, but we're saying that scripture as this direct revelation from God is therefore the highest authority. Um, and so what would you say is sort of the theological or biblical basis for thinking, th for, for, for having this conviction of Scripture as the highest authority? Um, it really is that simple connection you made earlier when I quoted those verses from 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1, that if God has breathed out these words, then they carry authority. No, when I make uh, a creation, it's mine. When God makes a creation, it's his. No mm -hmm. one has greater right to tell us what to do, think, love, believe than our creator does. That's the biblical basis for the doctrine. Yeah. Uh, today, we're recording this on a Wednesday. And on Wednesdays, I go to the Milwaukee Rescue Mission and teach a doctrine class. And even today, I don't remember how this came up. Um, must have been something one of the guys asked. But I, 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 I told the guys, like, you are not... By any means, and nor do I expect you to be obligated to believe anything that I think, or if that's my opinion. Um, but the authority of Scripture means that if I can show it to you from Scripture with sufficient justification that this is actually taught in Scripture, then you're obligated to believe it. And that's what we believe as Protestants. Like, you're talking about teachers and such. Like, teachers are simply, in many ways, we're, we're, the, we're mediators as... A, as um, that that word could maybe have some baggage, but we are we're we're instructors of the truth. We're not sort of the possessors of the truth, but we're pointing people to scripture. We we are heralds. That's a Bible metaphor, a New Testament metaphor. Yeah, we're messengers that God sends. Um, we're not messengers like apostles who carry this extra level of authority to speak with our truth at all times. But insofar as the herald is accurately representing the message that the king told him to deliver then we're not we're carrying his authority though right. because we're carrying his words yeah yeah and i think of passages like uh first thessalonians two thirteen, where paul says i thank god that when we came and we preached to you you received our word not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of god there's this sort yes. of implication that if it is god's word it is the highest authority um you can't if God is the highest authority in the land by nature being God, you can't go higher than him. His word, no, no one's word can go higher than him. So Jesus talks about, um, I can't remember if it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees or such, but the, the religious leaders of his day, he says that they made void the word of God by their traditions. So Protestants want to say, hey, we're not opposed to traditions, but we don't want to put them at the level of scripture or at the point where they actually make void scripture. Right. That That's a danger that recurs over and over again in the smallest and biggest ways. We, we find it so easy. I do. I, I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I find it so easy to deny God's authority functionally, mm -hmm. even when I formally subscribe to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Another passage I think is a really helpful one when it comes to sola scriptura is in Hebrews 6, uh, when God was giving an oath to Abraham, uh, he had no one yes. higher by which to swear. And I so he love swore that. by himself. And that, of course, assumes like, like if I, if, if I was to swear or make an oath or I could appeal to something else, and that's sort of the idea of typically what goes on in swearing is like I, people say like on my mother's grave or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. God is not going to – what would he even appeal to? Beyond himself, what, what's he gonna? There's nothing higher than him, and so he swears by himself. And so with scripture, there's nothing that substantiates um, and, and sort of imputes authority to scripture, but it stands on its own as God's word. Amen. Yeah, let's uh, close with maybe a few quick um, sort of pastoral, practical application type questions. Um, what? Let me ask you this. What practical difference should the authority of Scripture make in our lives? When I was a freshman in college, at a Bible college, I was, uh, for the first time, attending a church that I had chosen myself. And that made me extra attentive, you know, to what the pastor was saying. And he, he said something that I wrote down, something like, you know, at, when you find the least hint of God's will as expressed in Scripture, you should jump to obey. And that is a practical difference. I was just having a talk with my wife just the other day, and we were lamenting about some of the sorrows that we've seen um, other people go through and wondering why haven't we. And without taking any credit for this, Kirk, you just have to believe me, but I think you know what this feeling is like. I looked back at certain choices I made in my life and realized Jesus guided me through his words in the Sermon on the Mount and God guided me through his words in Proverbs. And I am so glad that by God's grace, I heard those words. And what can I say? I obeyed. And my life has gone better. You know, trials still come to people who obey. But um, generally speaking, like the Proverbs teaches, if you follow the wisdom of the Bible, things go better for you. And that's been a massive practical difference in my life, avoiding the sins and pursuing the, you know, the goods of that scripture tells me to to do um, has made my life a really joyful and full one. Yeah. On the, and on the flip side, I, I could ask as well as what, in what ways does this doctrine then challenge or confront us? Well, we are all bent toward what a word you used earlier, autonomy <clears throat> to self-rule. And the ultimate challenge to self-rule is no, I'm in charge. <laughs> And every place where the Bible pushes back against what I want to do, even if it just says, go to church, that's, that's, uh, that's the doctrine of the scripture, scripture's authority challenging me. Um, or I mean, for me, um, I hesitate to really jump into all the ways that the Bible challenges me. I'll just, I will say more generally all the time, pretty much every time I read any extended portion of scripture there's something in there that's pushing back against some tendency Mm -hmm. i'm seeing in myself at the time Mm -hmm. i am not ruling myself and that's how the doctrine challenges us yeah it's it's simultaneously like a sharp edge where it's it's confronting and it's convicting and yet at the same time as as christians um when we are truly apprehending and remembering the truth that god's word is also good it's also uh, something very healing and something very assuring yes. that Comfort. even as it, yeah, even as it cuts uh, and, and and can be, dis- it heals. yeah, it can be distressing in a way. It can be because it's, it's tearing us down, but we can also, and we don't want to yield because we want to be the boss. But when we do, um, we can know that it's ultimately has our best interest in mind. Like God, God yeah. knows what's better. God, God knows right. a whole lot more than we do. Right. I love that verse where it says, does anyone want to love life and see good days. And I'm like raising my hand. Yeah, yeah I, I do over here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it, then I've got to fear the Lord. The passage says I, I've got to um, accede, submit myself to his authority. Yeah. Um, which kind of leads into another question is uh, what comfort do we derive from the doctrine of scripture's authority? This, this is interesting. You asked this, um, I pay attention to the challenges against the Christian faith that are out there in the public square. And one of them that's been around a long time, but I I sort of feel like there's been an uptick in this. I don't know who can say is that people criticize those who believe in the truth of scripture 
for using it as a crutch. You know, there was a day before communication technologies when you could kind of live your whole life within a 10 mile radius and only know the people in that area. And if everybody pretty well agreed, then you just didn't face any challenge from other worldviews. And it is confusing and um, disorienting, unsettling mm-hmm. to personally know lots of people who utterly disagree with you on absolutely central and important issues. So people will say, well, you're just a Christian because you were raised that way and you're clinging to these old traditions so that you don't have to face all the challenges. And uh, I'd actually like to say there's yeah, there's a little truth in that. Uh, of course, there's a sinful tendency to cling to things that are just traditional, but I do derive comfort from the fact that I can know truth and that faced with this maelstrom of other options, um, I have a rock in times of storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also say, well, because I'm finite, I don't know truth exhaustively, but I do know it truly. And um, I don't think that objection lands. Um, there's got to be some truth and it's going to be in found in my creator. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, yes, I am comforted by the authority of scripture because when I'm confused, I can just open up my Bible and see what my creator says to me. And my, my heart feels pure. My mind feels strong. I do derive comfort from this doctrine. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. He has the, in the midst of a world where there's so many competing claims, um, he has the authority to say so. He stands above everyone else. Yeah, that that image of him standing above brings me back to Stanley Fish. He talks about how basically, you know, we're all in the same plane here. And there's no way that you can possibly, you know, if you're on that same plane, um, even if you stand a little taller than other people, there's no way you can stand tall enough to speak with authority to everybody on that plane. We're all on the human plane. We need somebody who's not on our plane at all, who mm-hmm. stands above all of us and says, listen, this is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which as we think about the mission of the church as this podcast, church theology, theology that equips the church to be the church and to live out its mission, um, we have, we're emboldened then on our mission as we actually are those who, um, as Paul says in one of the Timothys, I believe it is, uh, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth that we actually, we hold on to the truth. We are people who have been given the truth and we can have confidence then as we go into a world that needs the truth, that we're not just trying to coerce our opinion onto other people. Um, but we go as people who are conveyors of what God has said and we can rest assured in the message that in as much as we're actually communicating what scripture says, we're communicating what God says. The gospel is public truth. It equips us and emboldens us as Mm. we go on this mission. We cannot let postmodernism succeed in making us believe that every claim to truth is a power play or that I have my own truth and you have yours. On ultimate issues, that's just not true. There is one truth and the Bible is it. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. talking with you again mark thanks for joining me again thanks for having me yeah i mean i I, my heart just rejoices to to talk through these things with you yeah i'm looking forward to our talk next time uh we'll be talking next time about the sufficiency of scripture so be sure to tune in again then all right see you